While the headlines focus on our banking sector and effects on manufacturing, it may be Britain's fishing industry that is affected the most by Brexit. The Battle of the Thames. Brexit, they said, would save Britain's fishing industry. Britain makes more money than any other country in Europe from fishing. Given that we've got the greatest fish stocks within the European Union by a long way, we have to share what is rightfully ours with the rest of the EU. Go back down the river, because you're up one without a canoe. Up until now, the EU's common fisheries policy has set the rules about where boats can fish in European waters and how much they can catch. But after becoming a major issue during the referendum, the government is already talking about taking back control of the waters around our islands and stopping vessels from other countries fishing on our coast. Is this headline true? Uh, it, yes, the headline it is. says, no foreign fishing in our waters. Well, uh, fishing, fishing in the, uh, uh, the immediate area around our waters, 6 to 12 miles, yes, we will be saying that we are taking back control. So, will our fishing industry be boosted by letting boats from our shores have first pick of our fish stocks? Or is that even practical in a world where fish can swim? And what does all this mean for the health of our oceans? Here at the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're going to find out. My name's Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. Talking all things fish, we're welcoming back to the podcast Fernando Balata. Am I saying that right? Nice. Uh, who leads on the New Economics Foundation's work on coastal economies? Fernanda, what is your favourite fish and why? Whale shark. A whale shark? <laughs> yes, it's the largest fish in the world. Yeah. Um, and I like large fish. Mm. I think they're very cool. And yes, I'm, it's one of my dreams to swim with one. I also think that there is a, a relationship here with an amazing fish that we can find in UK waters because um, we have the basking shark around our waters, which is the second largest fish in the world here um yeah wow. uk waters learn something new every day there we go and for the first time we've got griffin carpenter banging name such a strong name on the podcast he's a senior researcher at the new economics foundation and an expert on all things fish related hello griffin your favorite fish please and why maybe on the other end of the spectrum little mackerel um oh, really? they're, they're beautiful they're nice and oily they're <laughs> all around the uk coast uh, and they're fairly sustainable so little, little mackerel is in there are different sizes of mackerel? No, no, oh, you just, just that. Just it's quite mackerel. small compared to a whale shark. Okay, yeah. <laughs> nice, okay. I know what I'm having for tea. And we've also got a very special guest joining us all the way from the shores of Bangor. Am I saying that right? Um, no, it's but Bangor. Ba- Bangor. Bangor, you've got to roll the R's Bangor. in Wales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like Bangor. Uh, Bangor. Uh, in North Wales, mm. and giving us his view from the front line, muscle farmer James Wilson. Farmer. Uh, yeah, well, right? we um, yeah, uh, cultivate them in an extensive way, which basically means we farm them on the seabed. Oh, it used to be called oh. bottom farming, but that's prone for misunderstanding. <laughs> so now it's called benthic cultivation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Lots yeah. to discuss and explain this week. But we're going to jump into the big question for now. Uh, will Brexit boost Britain's fishing industry? For lots of coastal communities across our islands, fishing is a crucial part of the local economy and its traditions. But for years, many of those working in UK fishing have felt left behind as they've seen their industry go into decline. I've been a fisherman for 30 years. I hardly think there's anyone in the panel who's got enough time in the day that would make me change my mind to vote to stay in the union when we have been discriminated for the last 40 years. 
Some think the EU rules on fishing have damaged their businesses. Others see big industrial fishing as the issue, hurting small-scale fishers and the environment alike. Many in the fishing industry voted for Brexit as an opportunity to save their livelihoods. But will leaving the EU boost fishing in Britain or cause more problems than it solves? They've said that you know, fishing is at the forefront and they'll look after the fishermen. But most fishermen that I know are very wary of that. And we'll have to wait and see. Let's have a chat about it. So, first up, in basic terms, how does our membership of the European Union affect fishing in the UK, Griffin? In really profound ways. Um, it's one of the industries probably most affected by EU regulations right now. So I think about kind of three of the bigger issues being how we share access to waters. So right now, um, European waters are shared between countries. So you can fish in Spanish waters or in Finnish waters if, if you have the quota to do so. Mm. Um, so it's all one shared group. Um, the EU also gives us the framework in which we share stocks. So decide uh, with cod in the North Sea, how much does the UK get to fish? How much does France get to fish, etc.? Um, and the third one is around setting the common market because this is huge for fisheries where we export most of what we catch and we import most of what we eat. So trade is a huge issue in fisheries and having the rules and regulations around the common market is a big one. Um, so there's issues like EU labor and regulations, but I think about access to waters, quota, and the market as the big three. Is there a reason that we Im we eat most of what we import? Is it just about what we like? Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's some history here as well, where we used to have a big fishing fleet that go to Iceland and catch cod. And um, oh. so of course, fish and chips is huge on menus. And uh, I suppose British tastes are a bit conservative. <laughs> so we export um, a lot of this really interesting fish to France and Spain, where um, they're much more interested in a variety of, in diet. Wow, I did not know that. Very interesting. All right. So how have things like the common fisheries policy worked out practically for people actually working in the fishing industry? James? Well, I mean, I think the first point to make is, is what is the fishing industry? You know, the fishing mm. industry is more than just the catching sector. It's, uh, and it's more than just the aquaculture sector. It's, it's the aquaculture sector. It's, it's the processing sector. It's the entire supply chain. For the catching sector, absolutely, quotas have, by and large, defined their activity and, and their sort of economic um, profitability over mm. the years. Um, that's not necessarily the same for processes. You know, processes are out in the supply chain to get raw materials that they can, they can modify to, to produce a product for the market um, that that's, it hits the market at a price that, that the consumer wants to buy it. So I, I think for the processing sector, the ability to, to have um, free and easy imports, be those from other European Union member states or from EA member states like Iceland and Norway is, is paramount to their, to their business model. Um, mm. For the catching sector, clearly, there's been this long-held belief that uh, when the UK joined the European Union that the fishing catching sector was, was sold out as a bargaining chip down the river. Mm. So there's like a historical sense of... Um, uh, grievance mm. associated with that process and, and that sort of still lingers to this day I think that, you know there's there's a certain irony associated with that at the moment because of course um, the Scottish fleet which makes up the um, majority of the catching sector in, in the UK is doing really well at the moment so huge numbers of new boats have been have been ordered or commissioned or, or provided over the last two or three years and that's that's a reflection of how well they've managed the quota um, situation, how well stocks have been rebuilt over the past 10 years, I guess. So so how have things worked out in terms of the CFP? Well, they've worked out good and bad, depending on where you sit in that process. 
Okay, thanks, James. So in terms of what's happening now, as we discussed last week on the pod, we're in the middle of Brexit negotiations. Uh, So, Fernanda, how is fishing being dealt with uh, in the negotiations? Well, fishing doesn't feature very prominently. I mean, Mm. it's not on the front pages of the newspapers. Um, And I think that links back to the feeling of communities that have been dependent on this this sector, like coastal communities. They have unique assets in the fishing industry, as we've mentioned already, has felt let down by uh, previous policies in joining the EU. So I think there's a fear that that will happen again. Mm. Coastal communities are some of the most deprived areas in the country. There's an opportunity, I guess, as always, um, within or outside of the EU to support the industry in a way that helps rebuild um, coastal economies. All right, so Govey's popping up on the pod again. Environmental Secretary Michael Gove has talked about taking back control of our waters. So, Griffin, is that possible? And what would that actually look like? Yeah, it's an interesting one because taking back control, of course, is the tagline. Uh, Mm. In fisheries, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Taking back, going before the EU, we didn't have exclusive waters then either. This was invented during the time we were in the EU. Um, So taking back, going to the 1970s, does not give us any greater say over our waters. But, you know, bearing in mind, if we declare our exclusive economic zone, so that's 200 nautical miles from our shore or the midline, um, you know, in the English Channel or or where it doesn't extend all the way. If we draw a line there, that's only addressing part of the problem. We can only control what's on our side of the line. So you lose control over what's happening on the other side. So if there's problems with other European fleets and we don't think that the French or the Spanish are fishing sustainability, we've just lost control over any regulations that impact how they fish. So will leaving the EU mean that fishing boats in this country can catch more fish and make more money? James? Well, again, I think it depends what part of the fleet you're talking about. Griffin mentioned earlier that most of the fish we catch, we we don't eat, we export. Mm. And most of the fish that we, we, we import... If the negotiations um, are favourable for, for the UK catching sector, then it's likely that there'll be you know, increases in quota of the main pressure stocks. What happens to those stocks then? So, so if we don't eat those species, we don't eat nephrops, we don't eat, we eat some of the cod, we eat some of the haddock, but you know, a, a, lot of that, a lot of the other stocks are exported. Um, uh, then, and, and the majority destination for those exports is Europe, and we don't have the same level of access to that market. Mm or the same speed of access to that market, then, you know, given it's a perishable product by and large, you know, what impact is that going to have on price? So, yes, more fish, does that translate to, to more profit for the, for the vessels? Not necessarily, I'd suggest. Yeah, it's, it's a good point about the fishing industry that it's really a whole bunch of different sub-industries. And something people often don't understand is we talk about fishing quota all the time. That's one of the more political issues, who gets to fish? But how it works in the UK fleet is half the boats that you see are small scale and they're fishing shellfish that's exported and it's not under quota. So if we increase quotas post-Brexit, that's really fantastic for some fishers who might have more opportunities. But for half the fleet, they're not fishing quota, but they do export. So you've got to think about the balance of risks and opportunities. And for some fishers, it might be one way and some it's the other way. Um, And so, you know, dealing with this in terms of Brexit negotiations, it's who has the power, who you know, which of these industries are we listening to when we talk about the fishing industry? Mm. So we've talked a, a bit about the impact on fishers. Um, what about the environment? Do we think that Brexit is going to be better or worse for the health of our oceans, Fernando? Yeah, so 
again, concerns for the environment because negotiations are done by humans yeah. <laughs> and the fish don't get a say. You know, if the UK is taking control over its waters and how much fish it gets to fish, that means it will be setting its own quotas, I guess. And if you want to increase that at the same time, the, e- the EU might want to increase it as well, then it will lead to overfishing, which is a very bad thing for the environment and for fish stocks. Yeah, absolutely. It comes down to, you know, who has power in the negotiations. And we and we talk about who has the bargaining chips between the EU and the UK. But of course, the third party here is the environment. Uh, and they clearly have the weakest voice of all in the negotiations. So I think it's a big fear that they're the ones that are going to be losing out. And of course, we know through history that if you don't look after the fish stocks, then ultimately the industry suffers. Mm. Can, okay. can I just come in here as well? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of, um, I don't think... Um, oh, I, I'd hope that the um, the industry will not go back and, and repeat past mistakes. I, I think it understands more about um, issues associated with sustainability in terms of and issues associated with environmental protection. I mean, it didn't always, but we've been through a long journey over the past twenty years, largely a, a journey which was which were provoked by reports from large NGOs like Greenpeace associated with unsustainability or non-sustainable practices. Mm. I'd, I, I'd suggest that. The risk uh, in terms of environmental protection uh, to, to the sector isn't necessarily um, a direct risk from the industry. It's it's associated with the other industries that are there putting stuff into the sea. So, you know, from the sector point of view, our big concern is marine pollution. You know, the European Union provides a very strong framework um, that, that's there to, to regulate and control marine pollution. And, and will the UK have not just the wherewithal, but the ability to maintain that level of restriction. I think that's that's kind of uncertain. You know, we've been through austerity and I think, you know, that's the landscape that we're coming out within. Mm. So. Lots to think about. So we like to, here on the Week Economics podcast, make predictions, usually, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Uh, so as a final question on this, uh, what do you think will happen to the fishing industry in this country because of Brexit and what do you hope will happen? So realistic versus in your dreams. I mean, I think the important thing to recognize here is that there are lots of forces on fisheries besides Brexit. So when we think about the fishing industry, it can't just be how much quota do we get from Brexit. It's, no, how do we deliver something that's sustainable and can deliver jobs for coastal communities? So I suppose my prediction would be a worry is that Brexit sucks all the energy out of the next few years. Anyone else got big dreams for us? I mean, I've got a view, and it's not a popular view in the sector. I mean, I, I, I really, I think that this, this for sure, you know, if if this process goes ahead, then we're in for a period of, of you know, very profound uh, disturbance, and um, that'll take a while to roll its way out. And I don't know how much of the industry is going to be left at the end of that. I think whatever's left at the end of that, whenever that is, you know, will probably be, be you know, will probably be be okay. And you know, I, I you know, I, I, I'd like to think. I mean, I'm a third generation fisherman. My dad fished, and his dad fished before him. Um, I love this industry; it's in my blood. Um, I'd like to, to think that you know, we we don't just have a future; but we have a great future. But you know, uh, time will tell. On that note, thank you very much, Fernanda, Griffin, and James, for talking all things fishing with me. Order, order. 
I now call the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Right Honourable Philip Abbott. We're finishing up this week with something completely different um, because Budget Day is around the corner on Wednesday and we want to find out what to expect from it. So Neft's Principal Director of Policy and Advocacy, Andrew Pendleton, a regular on the pod, has swung back in to let us know what he thinks. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Aisha Hayding. I'm <laughs> good. You look really nervous. I'm not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not nervous. I just probably should drink some wine. Oh, I noticed okay. there's some on the table in front of me. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Do a <laughs> shot. Uh, all right. So... What should we be looking out for in the budget on Wednesday? Mm-hmm. Um, what spreadsheet Phil likely to, to hit us with? Spreadsheet Phil. Uh, yeah. he's, a, he's a scintillating character. So, I mean, spreadsheet <laughs> Phil, to be honest, is, is in a bit of a pickle because all of the economic forecasters are going to tell us that you know growth is slowing in the UK anyway. Mm. Um, and he will know that Brexit won't be kind to us in that respect. All of the credible economic forecasts tell us that Brexit's going to be bad for our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means he's got less... Wriggle room. He's got less money to spend than he thought he might have because he was building up, if you remember, a year ago, a nice little war chest. Mm. But he's got less money. Um, and yet, on the other hand, because the government is, you know, it's such a fragile government in such a weak position that all of his colleagues in different departments have been flying various different kites to tell him what they'd like to see in the budget, housing in particular, but also schools want more money, the NHS wants more money and so forth. And at the moment, as it looks like, he doesn't have that money. So I, I strongly suspect what he'll do is not very much, actually, oh. as a consequence of all of that, which is a is an enormous missed opportunity because as the economy slows, it is the moment when we need government to get more active mm. and and to start to make some things happen in the economy, which is going to be re- which would be really critical. But I suspect what he'll do is a, a bit of tinkering, for instance, discussion of cutting stamp duty for first time buyers. Mm. But you know, frankly, for a lot of people, even with cut stamp duty, getting on the first rung of the housing ladder is pretty impossible. Yeah. Thrilling stuff. All right. So sometimes what's not in the budget is just as important as what is. Um, So what do you think the government is going to be avoiding this time around? Well, I think what they will avoid, what was, I mean, it was widely flagged that they would do something on housing. So, you know, as I say, they might, there might be something on stamp duty for first time buyers. There might be a bit more help to buy. But frankly, the housing market is in such a terrible situation and it's yeah. so impossible for I me. Mean, if you're on a very low wage, you're tr- doing several jobs, you've probably already got household debt. You know, the idea of getting into the housing market or even having any stable housing is a fantasy. And that's something that really needs to be tackled. It doesn't only need to be tackled because it's the right thing to do, but but it's economically wise as well. Because, you know, if we build houses, if councils build houses, if the government builds houses, if communities build affordable housing, that's economic activity. It gives work to construction workers and the construction sector is contracting quite fast at the moment. Uh, and it's also long-term what, what economists call a productive asset. It's people pay rent, so there's income from that housing. So it's a really good thing to do as we go into this Brexit cycle. But I suspect that they'll bottle it and they'll bottle it for two reasons. One is because politically for the Conservatives, you know, a lot of their grassroots, to sit, smaller towns and cities, it's quite hard to get stuff built because a lot of local people object. So there's a lot of there's a lot of objection to getting stuff built. So that's one thing. But also it just goes against the economic grain. It's not something that they government being active in housing is not something that they feel so comfortable with. So it's very difficult, I think. And spreadsheet fill in a very difficult position. But that that would be the number one thing that from a NEF point of view, we'd we'd want to see happen. 
And there's, I mean, there's two ways to tackle it. More government money going into housing, but also make land cheaper. Because mm. the big reason why housing is so expensive is because land is so expensive. Government owns a lot of land. It's trying to sell a lot of land at the moment. So as, uh, it sounds simple. It won't be as simple as this in practice. But don't sell that land. Let people build affordable housing on it. That would be a very simple thing to do. And it's the Treasury, really, that sits at, 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 at the top of that pyramid of doom that's currently meaning that we're not getting affordable housing built in this country. OK, so the pyramid of doom. Taking us, taking us <laughs> I always edge. bring you a pyramid of doom <laughs> yeah, yeah, ev- exactly. every time I come on the podcast. Oh, well. Well, thanks, Andrew, for popping in and giving us a uh, sneaky budget preview. Um, we'll be covering the budget right here on the Weekly Economics Podcast next week. Until then, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do think about leaving us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast app. It only takes a minute and you will get a shout out from me and maybe I'll not mock your username. It'll be great. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by Hugh Jordan and James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.